Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, first published in a collection, uh, I think it's the very first poem in there, called Mountain Interval, Interval, and it's from 1916. Um, this is m- maybe the most famous 20th century American poem. Just I'm going based on the number of times people talk about it, and I guess they learn it in school, and it's famously quoted in lots of... Um, commencement addresses, oh, not commencement, uh, valedictorian addresses, and uh, is used in commercials on television. It's it's very, very famous, and um, I thought I was all smart and clever, uh, having ha- had this thought that everybody misunderstands the poem, but apparently that's a whole thing. People on the internet saying everybody misunderstands this poem, and there's a whole book uh, written by a guy named Orr, O-R-R, which is a fun name for this uh, poem, uh, because uh, he calls it The Road Not Taken, the most misunderstood poem. <laughs> so I'm starting to uh, think I'm not the only one who thinks this poem is often misunderstood. Well, now you raise a terrific question, which is, if we all agree that the poem is, or even if the plurality <coughs> of us agree, <coughs> excuse me, that the poem is misunderstood. Right. Why are we saying that? Exactly. I mean, it it, it made me question um, whether I should bother doing a show on it if everybody understands this very famous poem is misunderstood. Um, but maybe that's just a, a relatively recent thing. But I, I notice, like, I want to do a really big show one day on The Raven. This is a is a very misunderstood poem, um, deliberately so, on the part of Poe. And as Frost has done, I think this poem is designed to be misunderstood. The joke is on the reader um, and on on the reader not reading it carefully. But also just the way we take things in, sometimes we get tricked by stuff. And this poem has a, a long history of in fact, even before it was published, it had a, a massive impact on people. And I guess that's part of the story is, is you want your words to have the right impact. But if they have a misunderstood impact or a harmful impact, you might be upset by that. So there, there's a lot going on in just these four stanzas, one page poem. I'd like to offer a supplementary theory. Sure. Um, there's a, a marvelous book called The Man-Eating Myth by uh, William Ahrens. He decided to find out, uh, he's an anthropologist, decided to find out if any anthropologists who report about cannibalism, uh, ritual cannibalism, not nutritional, I mean, nutritional cannibalism, not ritual cannibalism. It's not eating your warrior enemy's heart, but, you know, just killing people for food. Um Was there any anthropologist who ever had witnessed this? Um, So he passed out a questionnaire at the American Anthropological Association. And uh, to make this story short, he pursued every lead that he got. Every single one of them was, well, no, I didn't see it, but I heard Mm. it from someone. 
And it kept going and going. And according to Aaron's, in fact, it is impossible to find any eyewitnesses to nutritional cannibalism. In fact, as has often been asserted, cannibalism is one of the two universal taboos. And that is, they exist in all in all cultures. And what Aaron's concludes is that the point of saying that there are cannibals on that other valley is that cannibalism is used as a marker for something not being human. Mm -hmm. It's it's a boundary. And so I'd like to offer as a supplement to what you're saying, which I think is quite reasonable. And we need to ask, um, should we take this poem straight, whatever that means? Or should we see some separation between the author and the speaker and think that this author is setting us up to actually critique the speaker? But in addition to that, um, it is possible that maybe if people again and again realize that this poem is misunderstood, the reason for saying it's misunderstood is to say, see, all those other people, they're not as smart as I am. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Reader. And so, right, and this poem being so widely known and so um, taught and memorized. And so this is the poem on which you can say, aha, I didn't learn just any poem. I learned the truth about this poem because yeah. I'm better than you. So this poem becomes... A, a cultural sign in addition to the question, should we take it straight or not? That's just a supplementary suggestion. Absolutely. And I think that is that is actually perhaps a part of the appeal of the poem is, is it has at the end a kind of, if you read the last three lines, and I guess we should read the poem pretty soon, but if you read the <laughs> last three lines, uh, those are the ones that you come away with. Those are the ones that people um, remember. But those last three lines out of context are actually the opposite meaning of the poem. Or We're going to have a problem today, Jesse, absolutely. because I think I agree with you. Well, let's, let's, uh, why don't you read the poem <laughs> for us, and then, um, and then we can go back and, and okay. look at parts of it. The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. You, you read it with a certain tone, Eric. Um, 
I, I'm not sure what tone you're supposed to read this in because it, it, in one, and not, I don't think the first time I read it, which was probably in school, I don't think it was read in the tone that it's, I think you had a kind of ironic tone. Am I wrong? Actually, what I was aiming to do was something like um, the usual reading of Wordsworth's Daffodils, where the, the speaking voice we are to presume is quite seriously believing that his contemplation of a particular encounter with nature has has made an enormous difference in him that this is a romantic poem a moment of heightened emotion recollected in tranquility Uh, but to the extent that it's ironic i think what's slipping into your hearing of what i was doing is that i believe that there is a good case to be made not ironclad in my mind maybe you'll help me um sure you will but a good case to be made that Frost, despite what you read in Wikipedia, isn't the speaker here. That the speaker is a character like the poet we think Wordsworth is, all high on nature and everything. But Frost is letting us know something else. He's yeah. giving us the, the, the justification for actually critiquing this fellow. And asking if his relationship to nature is reasonable or not. Right. Now, the, the, there is a story behind um, the writing of this poem that does, I think, speak to who's telling the tale. Um, but the tense is also important, I think, in the telling of the tale. In the first stanza, we've got it in past tense. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. And in the final stanza, I shall be telling this with a size somewhere ages and ages hence. So this is not ages and ages, and ages after he at, was at this crossroads or this, um, this uh, divergent point. It's somewhere between when he's standing there and when he made the decision to go down one of the paths. Um, so to me... When I picture who's telling the story and how they're telling it, um, I'm I'm imagining that this person, the narrator, is standing at the crossroads still, and that those, I guess, crossroads is not the right word. Um, the two paths that lead from one. So this is kind of a Y shape in in my mind. What's funny though is the title. It says the road not taken gives us the idea that there's two roads. And then the very next line, the first line of the poem, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. You could almost have it that there is only these two roads parallel down through the forest. And then both of them go off in different directions. They were running parallel. They go off in different directions. But I I think it is more like that it's a Y shape. Um, And yet... The whole point of the poem, I think, is to make a balance between making decisions and not knowing what consequence will come from that, being very um, thoughtful as to what decision you're making, but also realizing that you can't see what effects those decisions will have. So when we get to that final stanza, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a in a wood. And this is almost exactly as the same 
uh, as the first line, slightly different, and I, and then a repetition in the next line, I took the one less traveled by. So sometimes people take this title and remember it as, or the title of this poem is, The Road Less Traveled. And mm-hmm. I think that that is actually um, the takeaway for a lot of people. And and in fact, the guy apparently who this was written for um, was a friend of Frost's. His name was Edward Thomas. He was um, kind of like one of my uncles. He, he had a lot of trouble making decisions because he was always trying to make the best choice. But all, or my uncle is always trying to make the best choice, but he can't. Um, he spends too much time trying to figure out which is the better choice and ends up being able to, you know, he misses both opportunities, you know? Um, and apparently this was a problem for Thomas, Edward Thomas. He would take his friend Frost through the woods and they would walk and talk, looking at the, at the flowers and hoping to see some wildlife. And, and then he would stop and say, I, I wish we had taken that other path. Do you, do you know about uh, Edward Thomas and the effect this had on him? I do not. So oh, this is this is news to me. It's fascinating. I didn't know about it until I started researching for today's show because uh, I just read the poem with my students and I read it, you know, in, in class. And I I think it's a powerful poem. And I I thought, oh well, I should do some research. And turns out that um, Edward Thomas was something almost like a pacifist um, who in who was a friend of Frost's between 1912 and 1915, um, they were living in England and he, they would go for these walks. When um, he Frost left back for the United States, he wrote a poem and sent it to his friend who um, was feeling like he should move to America. And he was not wanting to get involved with the war. But when he read this poem, apparently, he misunderstood it and thought, oh, this is a reminder of what I will lose if the bad guys, the Germans, I guess, overrun my country. So he, instead of moving to the United States, which was one of his plans, he took the other road, which was to join the army, and he got killed in 1917. The, the consequences of reading this poem for the person it was written for were deadly. And of course he couldn't see what those consequences would be. This this poem is ironic and I think a humorous poem and that's how Frost intended it. But it takes on a much graver tone when when uh, you think of the context for its or the effect it had. That 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 would make uh, Edward Thomas to the extent that he decided to join up, um, that would make him the most um, damaged misunderstander of this poem you can imagine. Yeah. Because clearly the road more traveled for Englishmen during the Great War was to join up. Absolutely. And by not taking the road, not travel, the road less traveled, um, 
he got himself killed. But I, I don't find. But that's, of course, post hoc. Uh, I mean, the poem yes. was published in 1916. And you've just told us that Thomas died in 17. Um, this uh, I, I don't read it as humorous. I, I do, however, think that it, it there is a way to read it. I'm not saying it's exclusive of others, but there is a way to read it in which this is a poem about death. And the the notion of the time thread between the act of standing at that fork in the road, then contemplating the the fact of having taken one fork in the road, uh, one tine of that fork, and then later reflecting on that, uh, how much time passes between each of those three points um, is an interesting question. Uh, it says... Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Now, if you just ask me what color is a wood, um, having grown up in the north, you know, in New York State, um, I, I know that you know trees in New England are green. Mm -hmm. But a yellow wood <clears throat> is, in fact, exactly what you see if you're looking at a variety of aspen, like birches, for example. In the fall, birch birch leaves turn yellow. And I have often seen yellow woods. That's not what comes first to my mind. But the poet here wants me to know that this isn't just in a wood. It's in a yellow wood. Uh, it happens that another of Frost's most famous poems also is in Mountain Interval, and it's called Birches. Uh, that's a poem in which the speaker talks about how their birch trees are straight up. I mean, this is when they have no leaves on them at all. He's just seeing the, the, the birch trunks going straight up. And then among them, he sees others that are sort of bent diagonally. And he wonders how they get bent. And he thinks about uh, when he, as a boy, used to climb up the birches until he got to the point where they became uh, unstable and they would bend and eventually let him come back down to the ground. In the course of the poem, he realizes that, in fact, the bending of the birches has been done by ice storms that have weighted the branches, pulled the trees somewhat at an angle from the, their normally rooted position, and then the, the ice melts, coruscating. Um, and so when you come upon them afterwards, uh, you don't see what did it. And he concludes that he would rather think about it being done by a boy. Mm. Because as a, that, that boy goes up toward heaven and then the birch tree bends down and puts him down on the earth, which is really where he belongs. And the last line of that poem is, one could do worse than be a swinger of birches. So it, it's a poem about coldness, death, stripped down trees. Once upon a time he was a boy. He's going to keep this fantasy alive, even though he knows that factually it is not the case. And here we have a yellow wood, which I believe is an autumnal stand of birches, white paper birches, quite common and quite distinctive in the northeast of the United States. So it's autumn. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's autumn and he talks about things that one cannot foresee, he looks down the road as far as I could to where it bent into the undergrowth. Well, you know, it didn't take a dip down. What does he mean into the undergrowth? Undergrowth is what prevents you from walking. 
right? It's what makes it hard to go through a wood. He could have said until it bent, you know, out of sight, but no, into the undergrowth. I think what we can see here is that it's either what is called the pathetic fallacy, or if you like it, personification. He's made the wood into a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. The roads diverged. It's not like, you know, they, there was a split in the road. It's as if two roads had made an, an agreement. And then the road, it bent in the undergrowth. He's, he's vivifying nature. Um, and so what is nature doing here? It's drawing him on. And he realizes that, in fact, neither road is less traveled by. Mm -hmm. Right. They're equally the same. And yet he says he says that one wanted, you know, one wanted to be trod. Well, really? Is that what it wanted? There are two meanings to that. Right. It wanted it. It was its desire. And the other is it didn't have treading on it. But in fact, once he's told us that they were equally trodden, what we could really see is that all of this is a projection from the speaker. And I would suggest that the the voice behind the the silent voice behind the poem, the implied author, has set up a speaker whom we can see quite delicately, but we can see that he is pathetic, that he is personifying nature in order to be able to see that his journey, which at any stage in anybody's life, when you go left, you're never going to go back and start again to go right. Because even if you go back, it's now a right that was taken after the experience of the left. Right? I mean, it's miraculous. Mm -hmm. You can't step into the same river twice. This is a journey we all have to make. It's obscure to all of us. Our way is stopped. We may think we're making a choice. We may think, oh, goody, I'm going to be the person who does something new. I'm going to hit virgin territory, virgin experience, m wonderful ideas. Yes, people fall in love, but my love will be unique to me. My death will be unique to me. And so when he says ages and ages hence, I will talk about this. One way to read this is the poet giving us a narrator who recognizes that when he finally dies, he will be, in fact, thinking that the life he lived was made by not the choices, but the unchoices. His life was defined not by what he did, but what he didn't do. And that is, in fact, in another sense of the word, pathetic. Um, it's a not to, to me, at least it's not a humorous poem. It is an extraordinarily sad poem. Well, uh, I, I say the I think the humor really comes in in the final stanza because the the narrator is planning. He says, "I shall be telling this with a sigh," and the sigh could be of regret or of another emotion. Somewhere, ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a in a wood, and I. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, one way of reading that is, I am responsible for my life, <laughs> and I took the path that others are unwilling to take. <laughs> Therefore, I have gotten all the things in my life because of my decisions, which is hilarious because it is the opposite of the reading that you have. And, of course, that reading is in there, too. 
And then it's also an impossible paradox because of what we know from the previous stanzas. The grasses on either track are exactly equal, he says, or yep. about the same. <laughs> Neither had been trodden black by anyone previously. And then he says, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a, in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. It, literally impossible. If no one has traveled by either road that day, and he takes one of them, the other one is the one that was less traveled by. <laughs> right? right? Literally impossible. And and because he acknowledges that in this kind of ironic ending, he says, I will be doing this, right? He he's plan it's like he's planning to make a mistake. Um he's aware of his his future confabulation or rationalization. He's like, yes, my decisions have brought me to the place where I deserve to have been because I made these decisions. But the whole problem is that he didn't have any, any, he hasn't actually chosen, right? At this point, we don't know which path he took. In fact, he could have turned around and gone back the other way, right? Well, indeed, uh, there will always be more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.